On a night of Monday, November 7th, 2016, I was at home talking with my husband, Chuckles. He was absolutely convinced that former First Lady and former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton would beat con artist and reality TV star Donald Trump in that year's presidential election. And who could blame him? He definitely wasn't the only one. The poll showed her pretty consistently in the lead heading into the presidential election, which would be held the next day. Despite the Benghazi scandal, and then the scandal where Clinton's private emails were hacked, but her emails, she still seemed poised to win the electoral vote and become the President of the United States. The mass media was convinced. The American people were convinced. Hillary Clinton was convinced. Heck, even Donald Trump, to some degree, was convinced. After all, there was talk of him launching his own news network after losing the election. But even though I saw the poll numbers, I heard the news, I heard people talking about what would happen once the United States got our first woman president, something didn't sit right with me. The poll numbers were going in the wrong direction for Hillary Clinton heading into election day. Uncomfortably close, and in places like Michigan, which typically leans Democratic in presidential elections, the race was within the margin of error, meaning that even though Clinton maintained a small lead on paper, in fact, the race was a toss-up. And while some were expecting a shoe-in for the Democratic candidate, I questioned her choices to all but abandon battleground states and begin campaigning in longer shots like Arizona close to Election Day. And I questioned her earlier unwillingness to answer for her super predator's comments in support of the 1994 crime bill and her apparent indifference to young black voters and her reticence to support Black Lives Matter until it was clear she needed black Americans to support her in the election. While there was foreign interference in the 2016 election, the Clinton campaign did themselves no favors. There are also a lot of undecided voters going into the election. While undecideds often split down the middle, I wasn't so sure if that was going to be the case here. My evangelical friends and associates were agonizing over this vote. Abortion is the only thing that matters. But what if that means voting for someone who is as far away from morality as the East is from the West? What if that means throwing their Christian brothers and sisters of color under the bus? For some of them, they weren't undecided between Trump and Hillary, but between Trump and third party. And for some, it wasn't a matter of if they were going to vote for Donald Trump, but how they would justify it. How would they justify voting for someone whose life reflected everything they had been claiming for years God was against? I also wondered how willing were Republican voters, particularly those who felt like the mainstream media was fake and academia was full of elitist snobs, how willing were those folks to talk to pollsters? In grad school while teaching, I worked a second job as a research interviewer for a couple of years. It was through the university, and while it wasn't all political surveys, some of it was. I knew from that experience that some people mistrust political surveys. 
even when they come from reputable outlets. And that was before there was a guy running for office calling everything that didn't go his way fake news. So when Chuckles said that Hillary Clinton was going to win, I told him, I don't know about that. And unfortunately, I was right to be concerned. The next day, in real time, as the state-by-state -state results rolled in and the undecideds broke for Trump, and Clinton's odds of becoming the first woman president went lower and lower and lower. I was upset, as were many Democrats, liberals, and progressives. But I wasn't surprised. Four years later is 2020, and we have lived with over three and a half years of a Donald Trump presidency. A presidency with families on the southern border being separated, children being caged and assaulted by Border Patrol, and women being forcibly sterilized. That pro-life message is a joke. A presidency that justifies a rampant police state that murders unarmed and legally armed civilians, disproportionately people of color, without any consequences. That pro-life message is a joke. A presidency that uses the language of stochastic terrorism to inspire and give comfort to white supremacists and right-wing domestic terrorists who have murdered many and have plotted to kill more. That pro-life message is a joke. A presidency that has worked with the GOP Senate to stack the judiciary with federal judges and Supreme Court appointments designed to wipe away essential rights from huge swaths of the population. That pro-life message is a joke. A presidency that downplayed a global pandemic once it hit our shores and politicized the response leading to 226,000 plus Americans dead and counting, and emboldens a flouting of precautions that could save lives. That pro-life message is a joke. That pro-life message is a joke, and so is this presidency, and it would be funny if it were not so deadly. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potstirer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. By the time this episode is released, we will be in the final full week before Election Day, which will be held on Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. So I want to discuss 2020 and compare it to 2016, particularly in the area around political polling. What do the polls tell us, and what don't they tell us? And what are the factors surrounding this election that affect the accuracy of the polls? Throughout the summer and going into fall, former Vice President Joe Biden has pretty much maintained a 10-point lead, give or take, over Donald Trump as of this recording. The battleground states show a slimmer lead, but still fairly consistent. There's still the shadow of a 2016 floating over this current election. It's hard to trust the polls. We were told Hillary Clinton would beat Donald Trump, and she lost. And Donald Trump is the president, so the polls were wrong. Well, 
Not quite. I would make the case that the polls weren't necessarily wrong. It was the way that political commentators and journalists interpreted the polls that gave people the wrong impression. But before I get into this, let's back up for a bit. When we're talking about political polls, what are we actually talking about? Political polls in this context refer to surveys given to a sample of potential voters where they report who they plan to vote for in the election should it be held today. Surveys are used heavily in marketing and in other business contexts, as well as in the social sciences, to get a read of the population for the sake of decision-making. Going back to politics, this is why political polling data is used by candidates in major national and state races to make decisions. They might tell you publicly they don't, but they do. It's how candidates decide where they will travel and where they will invest the bulk of their campaign funds, how many local offices to open and where, which demographics to target, what types of ads to run and where and when to run them, whether that's broadcast TV during the day or at night, cable TV, print media, social media. Polls make a difference in campaigns. Don't let them tell you otherwise. That is why data is a key part of the budget for candidates, especially major party candidates in in the big races. Reputable surveys typically come from private research firms such as Gallup and Pew Research, mainstream news outlets, NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, Washington Post, New York Times, and so on, colleges and universities, and politically independent think tanks. But what matters more than who is conducting the surveys is how the surveys are conducted. The aim is for the results of a survey to be both valid and reliable. In survey research, validity refers to accuracy. Is the survey measuring what it's supposed to measure? Reliability refers to the ability to obtain the same results should you repeat the survey under the same conditions, everything else being equal. Both factors are important in terms of considering a survey reputable, and this is achieved by finding ways to compose a sample size that will be representative of the group being studied. When it comes to political polls, the goal is usually to obtain a random sample of a particular group. For example, likely voters nationally or registered voters from Ohio. Random, meaning that ideally, everyone who belongs to that group has the same chance of being chosen. There's a bit more to it, but that's basically how it should work. And the way the survey is constructed and conducted also matters. What the questions are and how they're asked and what order they're asked. If the questions are open or closed-ended, what are the available choices if the question is closed-ended? How long is the survey? Will it be long enough for the results to be meaningful, but short enough that a good percentage of people will finish the survey? Will it be conducted in person, by mail, over the phone, on the internet? And if it's over the phone, will it include cell phone users or only landline? There are a myriad of considerations that go into surveys and professional pollsters make every effort to hit the marks of reliability and validity. But even then, there are factors that cannot be controlled 
that can negatively affect reliability or validity. We'll get to that in a moment. There are various types of polls that you'll come across in your day-to-day life. You'll see polls on Twitter or Facebook or delivered to your inbox from a political candidate, party, political action committee, or PAC, or an interest group. Those are generally not of the reputable type, and it's not simply because of where they come from. After all, even Fox News releases decently reputable surveys. It's because of how these are conducted. If a survey is crowdsourced, like if someone tweets out a poll on Twitter asking who they'll support for the Kentucky Senate race, or you open the website for your local news station and you see a poll there asking what you think of a proposal on the ballot, those are not scientific polls as there is no method to composing the sample. The poll on Twitter is only going to capture people on Twitter, and the respondents may not even live in Kentucky. The news station poll has similar issues. They're only capturing people who are checking that website while the poll is live. And who might be checking the website may vary. If there was a mass shooting in your town that made the news nationally, and the local station is running stories on it, that might attract a different group of people checking the website than if the big story is the local pumpkin festival is happening next week. You may also come across push polls. These are polls typically employed by political campaigns, interest groups, PACs, and super PACs. And the purpose isn't to measure opinion or trends, but it's a form of campaigning unto itself. Push polls typically have slanted questions or may ask respondents about a particular event or issue that they believe will reflect negatively on their opponent. Traditionally, push polls took the form of phone calls, including robocalls, but have expanded to include internet and email polls and can also include mailers. For example, the National Rifle Association may send a mailer to their members with questions like, did you know Joe Biden and Kamala Harris want Australia-style gun control? Or as a resident of a swing state, you may get a call asking, do you think an impeached president who was $400 million in debt is fit for a second term? Or you may get a one-question poll on a website that says something like, have you heard about Hillary Clinton's emails? Like political ads, the slant may or may not indicate the truth, but the point is to push voters away from their opponent and hopefully toward the candidate they support. So of course, they are in no way reputable. But then you might come across a reputable poll where you are reached out to purely at random. You didn't sign up for something. You're not being called from a voter list and you're not being wrangled by a Facebook ad. You didn't volunteer for this. Someone volunteered you. In these cases, you're typically being contacted based on a list of phone numbers, addresses, or other contact information randomly generated based on computer algorithms. And again, While there's a lot more that goes into the process, there are entire college courses and degree programs centered on polling. These are typical hallmarks of reputable surveys. But even reputable surveys are imperfect. You will never get 
100% perfection. And this is where we get into 2016. Why did the polls in 2016 show Hillary Clinton winning the presidential election, yet Trump won? It's a combination of random error and systematic error, as well as a misunderstanding of how polls work. Error in general refers to factors affecting the reliability or validity of a survey. Those factors that make poll results just a little bit off, or in some cases, a lot a bit off. Random error refers to error that cannot be controlled by the researchers. Typically, the larger your sample size, the more likely the sample will reflect the characteristics of the population. But there will still be some variation. Traditional polling methods are better at capturing some groups than others. This is usually counteracted by weighting underrepresented groups in the sample to better reflect their proportion of the population being studied. But even with this, people are also individuals, and so there will likely be a little variation. Random error will not typically result in a similar skewing or imbalance of results in a specific direction should researchers repeat the survey. If the same skew happens in the same direction or similar magnitude each time the survey is conducted. That is unlikely to be random error. There's likely some challenge with the survey. That leads us into systematic error. Systematic error refers to error that researchers, by and large, can control. This refers to bias introduced with question wording and question order, as well as inaccuracies in how results from certain groups within a sample are weighted, stuff like that. Typically, systematic error is more likely to skew your results in a specific direction, but it may also lead to an overestimate or underestimate of results. An historical example that is typically brought up in survey research courses to illustrate this is the case of the 1936 Literary Digest poll. The Literary Digest was a popular magazine that began publication in 1890. Starting in 1916, it began conducting mail-in polls to find out who they were voting for in the presidential election. It was wildly popular, and it drummed up a lot of publicity and subscriptions for the magazine, especially since the results of the poll correctly predicted the winner each and every presidential election cycle give you an idea of just how big a deal this was. By 1936, 10 million people were mailed the poll, and the magazine received a response from 2.4 million people. Compared to polls now, where a sample size of around 1,500 respondents is pretty much the sweet spot, 2.4 million respondents for a poll sounds amazing. At the same time, This was about a 24% response rate, which for a survey by mail isn't necessarily bad, but we'll get to that. The 1936 presidential race was between the incumbent Democrat Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was seeking a second term, and Republican challenger Alfred Landon, who was the governor of Kansas. The Literary Digest poll results showed Landon beating Roosevelt by 14 percentage points. 
Yet when the election took place, Roosevelt beat Landon in a landslide, winning the popular vote by 24%. And Roosevelt carried every state's electoral votes with the exception of Maine and Vermont. This result was absolutely embarrassing to the Literary Digest, whose claim to fame was correctly predicting the election. And this led to a sharp downturn in the popularity of the magazine and it ceased publication less than two years later in 1938. But why was the 1936 Literary Digest poll so off from the actual election results when they correctly predicted previous elections? Systematic error. The size of the sample wasn't the problem, but the composition of the sample was. The Literary Digest selected respondents by compiling a sample group from their own subscriber list, as well as from telephone directories, club and association rosters, and car registration lists from across the country. Phones, cars, and magazine subscriptions were luxuries in the early part of the 20th century. Participating in clubs and associations can still be considered somewhat of a luxury, since it denotes a luxury of time. The polling sample, unsurprisingly, was made up of disproportionately middle-class to wealthy Americans who could afford some or all of these luxuries. Now, in previous years, this sampling bias, when the sample does not reflect the population being studied, didn't affect the prediction. The economy was doing pretty well during the 19-teens and 1920s until the stock market crash of 1929, leading into the Great Depression. In 1932, the presidential election was very much a repudiation of President Herbert Hoover, who faced overwhelming criticism for not doing enough to help Americans who were struggling in the early years of the economic downturn. But 1936 was solidly in the middle of the Great Depression, and at this point, there was a clear divide between poor Americans who found benefit from Roosevelt's New Deal and more well-off Americans who were not so fond of Roosevelt's government programs. The sampling bias was always there, but the Depression exacerbated conditions to where the sampling bias actually mattered. The other systematic error that may have made a difference is non-response bias, where there is a substantive difference between those who either can't or won't participate in a given survey and those who will. A challenge of polls by mail, even now, is a low response rate. For a mail-in poll, 24% isn't horrible, but political science researcher Peveril Squire wrote an article in Public Opinion Quarterly in 1988, where he makes the case that if all 10 million people who were mailed the 1936 Literary Digest survey responded, it would have correctly predicted Franklin Roosevelt the winner but those who responded were more likely to support Landon, likely because many of the middle to upper class respondents had negative feelings toward the incumbent, and the survey was an opportunity to vent. Keep in mind that the 1936 Literary Digest poll was a non-scientific poll. While a lot of money was invested in it each year, they did not employ methods that would mitigate any of these issues. 
At this point, modern survey research was in its infancy. As a quick aside, during the same 1936 election, George Gallup, the inventor of the Gallup poll, conducted a survey of 50,000 respondents, fewer, way fewer, than the 2.4 million that the Literary Digest had. But because Gallup used techniques which would later be refined and standardized in survey methodology, he correctly predicted both the results of the presidential election and the results of the Literary Digest poll. The 1936 election jump-started the field of survey research, and the rest is history until now. November 3rd, 2020 is the presidential election, and I will be live on the Potstar Podcast YouTube channel for a special election night live stream starting at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll be on for at least an hour, giving my preliminary thoughts on how the night's major races are shaping up, answer questions from chat, and just take some time to just chill with you all, share and commiserate, regardless of the outcome. Be sure to subscribe to the Potstar Podcast YouTube channel. I have a link in the show notes and ring the bell notification so that you can get all alerts, including a reminder of the Potstar Podcast election night live stream. Make sure you vote and do everything you can to maximize your voice. And afterwards, I'll see you at the live stream. Most reputable polls you see released to the public have a margin of error somewhere in the neighborhood of plus or minus 3%, meaning that each of the percentages can be 3% different in each direction based on random error. So for example, according to the CNBC All-America Economic Poll, as of October 27th, Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump nationwide 51% to 40%. This survey has a margin of error of plus or minus 3.5%. This means that Joe Biden's support could be somewhere between 47.5 and 54.5%, while Donald Trump's support would be somewhere between 36.5% and 43.5%. Because there is no overlap, Joe Biden can be said to be in the lead nationally. And it seems like aggregators like 538 have Biden holding a fairly consistent lead over Trump over the past few months. Hillary Clinton polled somewhat similarly in relation to Trump in 2016, though aggregators had her at somewhat of a smaller lead in national polling. Her national lead narrowed to within the margin of error for most polls going into the election. Clinton did win the popular vote by around 3 million votes, but if Trump had won the popular vote, the polls wouldn't necessarily be wrong because by the time the 2016 election happened, the polls had the candidates within the margin of error, or in other words, a toss-up. Not that all that matters. As we have seen in recent elections, the popular vote in the presidential election does not determine the winner, so it doesn't really matter all that much. The Electoral College vote does. And to be elected president, you need 270 electoral votes. In almost all states, the vote for president is winner-take-all, meaning if you win the election in a state, you get all that state's electoral votes. The exceptions are Maine and Nebraska, 
who use the congressional district method. In these states, two electoral votes are statewide, winner-take-all, while the other votes are determined by the results in each congressional district. This can lead to split votes in those states. So when we think of elections in the United States, think of it as 51 separate elections, particularly as far as the presidency is concerned. Each of the 50 states plus Washington, D.C. D.C. has electoral votes for president, but they don't have any representation in Congress. Taxation without representation. This is why the mainstream media focuses so much on swing states. Swing states, or battleground states, are the batch of states that, according to polls and to a degree, previous election results, experience a fairly close presidential race especially in races that bitterly divide the electorate, which are most of them at this point in modern American history. Winning some combination of electoral votes in swing states will deliver a candidate the victory. Key swing states in 2016 included Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Florida, and North Carolina. Going into the election, an aggregate of polls in these states with the exception of Ohio, had Hillary Clinton in the lead over Donald Trump. Thing is, she had more substantial leads earlier in the race, and even led in Ohio. Yet going into election day, her lead had fallen in each of the races to where polls in each state placed the results within the margin of error. So going into the 2016 election, each of the battleground states was in fact a toss-up. So the polls weren't wrong, at least in terms of predicting the winner. It's just that much of the mainstream media missed the way the race was trending and didn't pay enough attention to how close the race in these battleground states really was, by treating a Clinton victory as a foregone conclusion. That said, there were cases within the battleground states where Donald Trump's margin of victory wasn't predicted very well. A 538 aggregate of polls in Ohio gave Trump a 1.9 percentage point lead, but he won by 8.6%. Polls in Michigan said Clinton had a 4.4 percentage point lead going into the election, but Trump won there by the smallest of margins. So are there issues to be considered to improve polling accuracy? Sure. Ultimately, We want to be as accurate as possible and not give the electorate a false impression of how elections are shaping up. To this end, there are three potential issues that survey researchers have brought up that may have affected 2016 polling. The first is non-response bias. The 2016 presidential election was highly charged with a candidate who sought to discredit mainstream media outlets particularly ones that covered him negatively. This may have poisoned the well, leading Trump supporters to decline participation in political polls at a higher rate than Clinton supporters. According to a post-election report by the American Association for Public Opinion Research, or APOR, pollsters could have counteracted this non-response bias waiting for education levels when analyzing the results. Why education? College-educated voters are more likely to vote Democrat and also more likely to respond to surveys. 
On top of that, non-college educated white voters were more likely than other groups to support Trump. So if surveys took into account the disproportionately low response rates for non-college educated voters when analyzing results, they would have also caught more Trump voters. National polls have typically waited for education, but few state polls did at that point. Hence, the magnitude of Trump's victories in a number of states was off, while the prediction for the national popular vote was on the nose. The second is social desirability bias. Social desirability bias refers to the tendency of survey respondents to give answers during surveys that they believe will reflect better on them than their true feelings. Social desirability bias tends to be tossed about when discussing survey results touching on highly charged issues such as race relations or participation in illicit or deviant behavior, such as drug use or extramarital affairs. Robert Cahaley, chief pollster for the conservative-leaning polling firm Trafalgar Group, argues that discrepancies between most major polls in 2016 and the actual election results is due to social desirability bias. In particular, the idea is that many conservatives don't feel comfortable sharing their true opinions. So polls should take into account the shy Trump voter, the voter who supports him but doesn't want to admit it publicly, particularly to researchers conducting surveys. To their credit, the Trafalgar Group did predict that Trump would win the 2016 presidential election. That said, Pew Research released a study that seems to refute the shy Trump voter hypothesis by showing that there is no statistical difference between support for Trump conveyed in polls conducted over the phone and Trump support conveyed in online surveys, where respondents are not providing answers to a live person. Last but not least, the third potential issue that may have affected 2016 is the high percentage of voters who are undecided heading into Election Day. In 2016, as many as 13% of voters were either pure undecided voters or reported that they were considering a third-party vote going into the election. This left a great unknown when it came to the results of the election. More than a lot of pollsters, journalists, and commentators were willing to engage with. Typically, undecided and third-party voters are considered a wash. They often split down the middle and they don't typically affect election results all that much. But in 2016, that wasn't the case and the 13% broke in favor of Trump, particularly in battleground states. This was all too clear in Michigan, where Green Party candidate Jill Stein received more votes than the margin of victory Trump had over Clinton. You can't consider 13% of voters a wash. So what about 2020? Will 2020 be a repeat of 2016? In the swing states, Joe Biden seems to be doing well, but like 2016, the polls are close, so consider those toss-ups. Biden appears to be leading in all of the 2016 swing states, with the exception of Ohio, which has a small Trump lead. In addition, add a few more battleground states in 2020. Arizona, 
Iowa, and Georgia. All of these were Trump states in 2020, but these are now toss-ups as well. So Biden is leading, but let's be cautious here. I will say this. In general, I don't think 2020 will be like 2016 in terms of polling results. Should we have free and fair elections? The issues that affected polls in 2016 have seen some improvement in 2020. Close to half of state polls now wait for education, which is a significant increase from the 20% that did so in 2016. Also, considering that Donald Trump is now an incumbent president and he has been delivering red meat to his base, his supporters have become even more emboldened in their support. Those who squirmed at the prospect of explaining their Trump support in 2016 have had four years now to perfect their rationale. The other factor that makes 2020 different is that unlike 2016, there are a lot fewer undecided voters. We're at the point now where about 95% of voters have already made up their minds, and there are only about 5% of undecideds to play with. Also, let's not forget the coronavirus. Because of the virus, as well as efforts by the GOP to interfere in the election, more people are availing themselves of absentee mail-in and early voting. This could make a difference in the battleground states, but there appears to be less room for Trump to expand beyond his base. But like I said before, this hinges on free and fair elections. And as we all know, we can't guarantee that right now. Republican politicians and conservative courts have waged an all-out assault on voter access and voting rights and have made it abundantly clear that the democratic process takes a backseat to solidifying minority rule. It is my sincere prayer and hope that Donald Trump and his sycophants lose decisively, so decisively that there is nothing in the world that can be done to even give them the illusion or impression that they won. Please make sure you vote and encourage the people in your life to vote. You may find yourself experiencing resistance from officials who try to keep you from voting and all-out intimidation tactics from right-wing extremists. This is already happening, so be ready. We have to fight harder for our right to vote and have our voices count then they're willing to deny us of those rights. Make sure you are reviewing official information from your state elections office. Usually this is through your state's secretary of state, so you know the proper voting procedures in your state, and you can then make your voice count. Also, Vote.org and the American Civil Liberties Union are great resources in terms of election guides. If you are attempting to vote, and you are being unlawfully denied, or if you're being intimidated, call the Election Protection Hotline toll-free at 1-866-R-VOTE. That's 1-866-687-8683. Unsurprisingly, Amy Coney Barrett was pushed through the U.S. Senate confirmation hearings over the objections of Democrats and confirmed as a U.S. Supreme Court justice on Monday, October 26th, eight days before the general election. 
meaning that the U.S. Supreme Court has a hefty 6-3 conservative majority. This also means that it is extremely likely that the court will simply rubber stamp cases dealing with various issues on the conservative agenda, abortion, LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights, immigrant rights, rights of people of color, all of it is very much on the table and could be gone at any point with a court indifferent to hostile to the rights and liberties of anyone who isn't white, cis male, and evangelical Christian. They've already started with a decision this week where the court voted five to three along ideological lines to bar Wisconsin from counting votes postmarked on election day that arrive after that day, which is likely to disenfranchise many voters. Trump Justice Brett Kavanaugh, in a concurring opinion, essentially echoed the same flawed reasoning of the Trump regime. We now have a U.S. Supreme Court taking marching orders from a con artist. We have a White House full of blatant, unmitigated corruption and nepotism, where the president's senior advisor and son-in-law who has never earned anything a day in his miserable life, says on a major news network with a straight face that Black Americans aren't equal because we don't want it enough and accuses Black Lives Matter supporters of virtue signaling while having zero virtue to speak of. One third of the highest court in the land filled with this regime's appointees and another third solidly aligned with said regime disgusting. We can talk all day about how the Biden-Harris campaign and the Democratic National Committee are neoliberals and how they're not progressive enough. And those observations aren't necessarily wrong. But none of that is going to matter if we lose our rights and liberties to even fight for change. That is why this election matters, not just the presidency, but also Congress, the Senate and the House, and state government as well. Don't forget that we just had a census, and next year, state governments will decide how to redraw their districts for congressional seats and likely for state legislative seats. And if you ever wondered how much your state government matters, just look at how state officials are handling the coronavirus pandemic. Local governments matter as well, What the next generation is taught and how local funds are allocated, does your locality invest in public transit, public services, education, infrastructure? Elections have consequences, up and down the ballot. So make sure you vote. Whether it takes minutes or hours, make sure you vote and be sure your vote counts. So I discussed the aggregate polling data of this as of this recording, showing Joe Biden leading Donald Trump nationally and in most battleground states. If we have free and fair elections November 3rd, Joe Biden could very well win this. If we have free and fair elections, this is the United States of America, but this is the United States of America in 2020. I've shared throughout the Lifetime Imposter podcast that if Donald Trump makes it to the 2020 general election and he's still president, he will win. And while the poll numbers look great for Joe Biden, and I think the reputable polls are pretty accurate, I'm not ready to say that Biden has this in the bag. 
there is a very real possibility that Donald Trump will walk out of this election with a victory. And it could be earned, or it could be delivered to him through the efforts of foreign actors, complicit state legislatures, an illegitimate Supreme Court, or all the above. If that happens, and again, there is a distinct possibility it happens, things will likely get very ugly. Rights for many of us taken away, democracy obliterated, the authoritarian regime solidified, white supremacists and right-wing extremists further emboldened to commit domestic terrorist acts, and Christian dominionist evangelicals seizing earthly power. All of this to preserve white supremacy, head off the projection that white people will be a minority in this country by 2045, and assuage their fears of replacement. This is the last stand of white supremacy. This will not be time to give up. Too many lives depend on it. Remember that America's history has not been one of full-on freedom all the way through until the age of Trump. The U.S. government has been involved in genocide, mass enslavement, and all manner of discrimination and oppression. Even Adolf Hitler modeled some of his behavior off the oppressive behavior of the United States towards black Americans. The United States has not always been a beacon of liberty. For most of its history, it has been anything but for a number of people. So this is nothing new, even for us. But at the same time, during that same history, there have been Americans who have fought and died for the rights and liberties of themselves and others, who have tirelessly done the work to achieve freedom. Their efforts are not in vain because we have been able to enjoy a better life, at least for a time. We need to be willing to fight like the activists of the past did and understand that we may need to make some major sacrifices because this is not going to be a conventional fight. And an authoritarian state never backs down peacefully. But it will be worth it, if not in this generation, the next. A Trump victory will not be the time to give up. To the contrary, it will be time to fight hard until there is nothing left, because there is no other option. Our lives depend on it. Freedom is not free. That said, I could be wrong, and I hope I am. Joe Biden may well win November 3rd. But if that happens, we need to understand something. Despite what a lot of Democrats, liberals, centrists, and never-Trump Republicans say, a Biden victory, or even a Biden victory with the Democrats gaining the Senate and holding the House, is not the end of America's nightmare. Nowhere close. Donald Trump will still be president for two and a half months. Biden could find himself dealing with a hostile GOP Senate who doesn't want to play ball. Even if the Democrats win the Senate, Trump will still have a complicit Senate until January, and long after Trump is dragged out of the White House, kicking and screaming, his policies and the results of said policies will still be here. 
the stacked U.S. Supreme Court will still be here, and his radicalized base will still be here. The most difficult part of the equation is how will we live with Donald Trump's base moving forward? This is a base that includes white supremacists and right-wing extremists willing to resort to terror when the regime they support is already in power. If there is regime change, those extremists will not go quietly. We also have to live with the fact that everywhere around us are mild-mannered, respectable Trump supporters. This point makes me think of a scene from Borat 2, which, by the way, was really good, and I would definitely recommend it. Pretty much the idea of the Borat movies, if you've never watched them, is that the character Borat, played by Sacha Baron Cohen, is able to fool American politicians and other respected members of high society to expose their prejudices and problematic views on camera. And I think they kind of buried the lead here. There are spoilers, so if you haven't seen Borat 2 and you don't want the movie spoiled for you, skip about 40 seconds. There's a scene in the movie where Borat and his daughter go into a bakery and he buys a huge cake to present to Vice President Mike Pence. He asks the cake maker, who's a sweet-looking Caucasian woman who seems to be about in her 50s or 60s, to pipe a message onto the cake. The message she asks to be placed onto the cake is, quote, Jews will not replace us, end quote. The cake baker pipes the message onto the cake with no hesitation whatsoever. The cake baker in this scene makes me think of the more respectable Trump supporters. These are nice people who make quiet, decent neighbors. They might be friendly to people of color, immigrants, LGBTQ plus people. They may count these people as friends. These aren't the people marching on college campuses with tiki torches or storming the state capitol building because Bowricks had to close for a public health emergency. These are not the people running over protesters, plotting to kidnap their state governors who told them to wear a mask, or driving across state lines to kill Black Lives Matter demonstrators with an AR-15. But in supporting Dear Leader, who has never hidden the corrupt, bigoted, misogynistic con artist he is and has always been, regardless of the party he supported, this segment of the population has at some point decided that a leader who is an open bigot and misogynist is not a deal breaker. They have decided that a leader being willing to destroy the Democratic Republic to remain in power out of a jail cell and away from The Hague is not a deal breaker. And they have decided that a leader being willing to lie about a deadly pandemic, advise his supporters to ignore the science, and to endanger his own supporters in their communities at super spreader events so he can fill up on his narcissistic supply is not a deal breaker. If Donald Trump loses, and especially if he loses big, there will be a good portion of his supporters who will never speak of him again, and if asked, they might even claim they never supported him at all. When Hitler's dead in a bunker and Nazi officers are hiding out in the US and Argentina, every good German is magically part of the resistance. 
We need to face that a significant percentage of our country is willing to choose authoritarianism over democracy under certain conditions. And they will be with us for quite some time. Let me be clear here. This is not a call to march Trump supporters out to the sea. This is a call to finally deal honestly with the original sins that have held our country back since the founding. It's time to do the work. Because we've been putting it off for way too long. This will be incredibly painful, particularly for those who have wanted to avoid facing these issues or don't get why we're still talking about them. We need to face them and as much as we can make things right so that we can move forward united. This is how we move forward as a country. No justice, no peace. This election has been interesting in the sense that the opposition to Donald Trump has been a mix of strange bedfellows, actual Democrats, centrists, liberals, progressives, and left-wingers, as well as never-Trump Republicans. I am not a fan of the circular firing squad. I'm not going to come for the never-Trump Republican groups like the Lincoln Project, at least not right now. They have been useful in this election cycle, and their ads have been pretty savage. So we don't want to cut our nose to spite our face. But the enemy of your enemy isn't necessarily your friend. Understand that never-Trump Republicans, at their core, are still Republicans. They, along with centrist, third-way Democrats, got us here in the first place. And while these never-Trump Republicans may want Trump out of office, their ultimate goal, to make conservatism respectable and polite again, is not the same as the goals of liberals, progressives, and even most Democrats. And let's not forget that these are people who still deify Ronald Reagan, who was just as much a terrible human as Donald Trump, but with a shinier veneer. The point is that we need to build our own institutions, our own think tanks, our own interest groups, and bring on smart, daring, progressive strategists who get what time it is. If Joe Biden wins the presidency, if the Democrats can keep the House and take the Senate, we should not be afraid to hold these Democratic politicians accountable. We need for them to work to undo the horrific damage the Trump regime and conservatism in general has done to our country. Dismantle the refugee camps. Dismantle ICE and Border Patrol as we know it. Dismantle the police state. Ensure the equal rights and equal treatment of LGBTQ plus people, people of minority faiths, or people who have an absence of faith, as well as immigrants, people of color, and women. Keep religion out of the state. Because as a Christian, this melding of church and state is absolutely murdering the church and its witness. We need to vigorously advocate for common sense policy like universal health care, public health policy based on science, student loan forgiveness and government supported higher education, compassionate immigration policy, strong environmental policy and consumer protections. The investment in citizenry that post-industrialized advanced Western countries by and large enjoy. Government that is for the people, by the people also has a responsibility to the people, 
And it's time we hold our politicians to that. And we need to be willing to step up to replace them should they not take their role seriously. No matter who wins November 3rd, things are bound to get worse before they get better. That means be prepared in advance of the election and get ready for the real work. If you're registered to vote or if your state allows same-day registration, make sure you vote. Go to vote.org, which is informative and nonpartisan, to learn more. And on November 3rd at 8 p.m., stop by the Potstirer Podcast election night live stream. It'll be a great time. Thank you so much for listening to Potstirer Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing alerts you to new episodes once they come out, so you don't have to wait. If you enjoy the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. And Twitter is hot right now, so follow me there at PotstirerCast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future, because freedom is not free.